came to realize is that as a Palestinian, I'm discriminated against in, in almost every aspect in our life. Dealing with this struggle uh, of being a Palestinian and Israeli at the same time, only when I, I came with this difficulty and this struggle to God, I slowly accepted that this complexity in my uh, identity is a blessing and not a curse. And this helped me to change the way of thinking and believing that this complexity gives me the unique opportunity to be a bridge between my people, the Palestinians, and my country, Israel. My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as Global Ambassador and Ministry Director for Langham. Today, we take you back to the Holy Land, to Nazareth, a city rich in biblical history. Chris' guest is Rula Mansour, a Palestinian-Israeli theologian who received her PhD with support from Langham. Rula is the founder and director of the Nazareth Peace Center and is passionate about equipping others to be peacemakers. Rula's insights on reconciliation in her region serve as a powerful lesson for all of us, whatever our context may be. I hope you're blessed by their conversation. Welcome again to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright, and today you're coming with me to a very special place, the place where Jesus himself grew up as a carpenter's son. That is, of course, Nazareth in Israel. And I want you to meet one of our Langham scholars who also grew up in that land and now lives and works in Nazareth. And that is Dr. Rula Mansour. Welcome to you, Rula. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's really a pleasure to have this conversation with you. It is indeed. Let me tell our listeners just a little bit more about you before we get into our conversation. Uh, Rula Mansour is, as I said, a Langham scholar. Uh, she is now the founder and director of the Nazareth, the Nazareth Peace Centre. She has a PhD herself in Peace Studies and Theology from Oxford Centre for Mission Studies. She's a lawyer and a theologian, and she also serves as an independent conflict resolution specialist. She also teaches as a professor at the Nazareth Evangelical College there in Israel. Before all that, she was a public prosecutor in her capacity as a lawyer for 13 years 
In fact, she was the first Palestinian to be appointed as the deputy head of a public prosecution office in Israel. Rula's married, her husband's called Bader, and they live, as I said, in Nazareth with their three sons, Adi, Rami and Sami. So, Rula, tell us a little bit about your background. One thing I would be interested in is what it was like growing up uh, as uh, an Arab, as a Palestinian Arab, but also in uh, the Israeli state, the Jewish state, and as a Christian in that context as well. Did, was, was, it, was your family always Christian? Yes. So I, I live in Nazareth. Uh, it's uh, the largest Palestinian town uh, in Israel. Uh, well, in terms of my background, uh, my parents as kids became refugee in their own country when the state of Israel was established. And so uh, after they lost their land and property, uh, they came to rebuild their life again in, in Akko. And this is where uh, I live and grew up. It's a mixed town. It's a beautiful mixed town on the coast. Uh, so in, in terms uh, in term of my Christian traditions, so yes, my family is a Palestinian Christian family uh, from the Greek Orthodox tradition. Uh, my parents are committed Christian uh, and were active uh, members in the Orthodox Church. Uh, I came to know the Lord when I was a little girl. Uh, I learned uh, through my older cousin uh, about Sunday school classes at the small Baptist church in Akko. Um, so I used to attend uh, this meeting uh, and I very much enjoy uh, hearing stories uh, from the Bible. Uh, and one day uh, I uh, attended uh, an evangelistic meeting in Haifa uh, that Finley Graham was leading. And uh, I remember that day when I was 12 years old uh, and I, accept, I accepted the Lord Jesus as my savior. Uh, when I became a believer, I joined Sunday school teaching team uh, at my small church. Uh, I was very hungry to know more about Christ. So I read the Bible, uh, Christian books, shared my faith with my friends. And even at university, I joined uh, the local Christian uh, student group. Mm -hmm. uh, and during the same time, I also took several classes in theology in Bethlehem Bible College because I studied in, in Jerusalem and this was very close to Bethlehem. So, and after we get married, Bader and I became members uh, of the local Baptist church uh, in Nazareth until this day. Mm. So this is in terms of our uh, uh, Christian tradition. So we have been Christian since ever. <laughs> yes, for a, for a long time. And I think some, uh, some people will find it strange, well, not perhaps strange, but uh, not quite aware that there are Palestinians like yourself who are Christian believers and indeed have been for generations. Yes. So you said a minute ago that Nazareth is the largest Palestinian town in Israel. I wonder if you could just explain to me a little bit more the difference between uh, Palestinian Arabs like yourself living in Israel and Palestinians so-called living in Palestine in, in the West Bank um, or, or in Gaza, because obviously you're the same ethnicity, Arab, and yet your nationality, your citizenship status is very different. Am, am I right in that? Palestinians, citizens of Israel, are citizens of Israel. They can vote, they pay taxes, they have freedom of movement, and they, they live a better life than 
Palestinians who live in, in the West Bank or under occupation or in Gaza who are under siege. So there is a, a really big difference. They live under harder circumstances. Uh, however, Palestinians who live in Israel, uh, they are second class citizens. So they have different kinds of uh, experience, different kinds of injustices. I think you said in, in uh, an interview I had or an article you wrote for uh, our magazine that as you were growing up and as a child, relationships that you experienced between Jewish friends and Arab friends and so on were generally very positive, that it wasn't until you got to university that you began to detect and realize the difference and what it meant to be uh, a Palestinian, to be an Arab Israeli as opposed to a Jewish one. Is that right? Yes. This experience growing up in Akko in a mixed town, uh, I believe it also shaped the way I am today, it, it also shaped uh, maybe my theology and the way I think. And so um, as a kid, I had a, a Palestinian Muslim friends and also Jewish Israeli friends. Uh, my neighbors were Jewish and Muslim. Uh, and also I even went to a Jewish kindergarten for three years and mm -hmm. I was the only Palestinian then in, in the class. Uh, and uh, even every Christmas, my parents would invite all my classmates and the teachers to our house to see the Christmas tree mm. and eat sweets. And my father would tell the Christmas story. Mm. So uh, why I'm saying that, I, I think all this uh, helped me uh, to experience in my childhood uh, the belief that both groups can live together in harmony and respect. Mm. And I think as a child, I kept that with me uh, uh, as I grew up. The struggle I had, as you said, it was when I started studying law at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Um, and this is when the, neg the negative side of the reality uh, just hit me in the face and I came to realize is that as a Palestinian, I'm a second class citizen. And as I said, I'm discriminated against in, in almost every aspect in our life. Mm. Uh, and uh, every time we have a tension or a war that happens between Israel and the Palestinians, each time remind us that we don't really belong to the Israeli society and we are not welcome. And so um, dealing with this struggle uh, of being a Palestinian and Israeli in the same time, uh, I kept believing that if, if God intended that I would born as a Palestinian in Israel, then he has a, a, he has a plan for that. Uh, and only when I, I came with this difficulty and this struggle to God, and it was only when my identity in Christ took first place, uh, that I came to understand that, uh, or I slowly accepted that this complexity in my uh, identity is a blessing and not a curse. Mm -hmm. And this helped me to change the way of thinking and believing that this complexity gives me the unique opportunity to be a bridge mm -hmm. between my people, the Palestinians, and my country, Israel. So and later, a, a passion uh, starts to grow uh, in my, in, in, inside me uh, to become a peacemaker. And so uh, this background, what I'm saying, it, uh, 
helped me understand the importance of the cross in shaping my identity as peacemaker. And also uh, the cross illustrate the framework in which uh, I came to understand how we uh, act as peacemakers. Uh, our lives like the cross uh, should remind us uh, how we should follow Christ and how we should lay down our lives for others. Yeah. But it's also a good reminder that what creates the beauty of the cross is not the vertical relation alone, which is our relationship with God, but it's our relationship uh, with others. And mm. so in terms of my identity, uh, when we exclude or when I exclude the other from my identity, in other words, when, uh, when I see myself pure without the other because of fear of losing my identity. In fact, I lose my identity as a human being because we are born to be together and we can be human only when we are together. This is remind me with the Ubuntu philosophy also. It's even more the Ubuntu philosophy. Uh, it also assumes that our humanity decreases when others are humiliated or abused. And so we should intentionally create the space for others in our life and so uh, when we do that then we can become peacemaker and we can love even our enemy mm -hmm. and so when i go back to the struggle i had in my identity uh, it was only when i intentionally include the israeli in my identity and accept them rather exclude them then I start to demonstrate the cross in my life. So this is in terms of understanding myself within the struggle in, in this ongoing conflict and being Israeli and Palestinian at the same time. So, um, and after graduating from law school, uh, I decided to become a public prosecutor, as you said. So this was part of my dream to be a peacemaker, but this was difficult at the time because as I said, the conflict, Israeli-Palestinians. Prosecutors in Israel were mostly Jewish, uh, while more than 60% of the people in the Galilee are Palestinians. And also, uh, uh, the office was not open to accepting Palestinians. Oh. So, uh, on, on the other hand, Palestinians did not look highly at people serving in the office because the office was uh, uh, perceived to be against them. Anyway, so, I, uh, I, I, I went against both attitudes and I applied for the job. And after one year of waiting, uh, I, I got that job. And I worked there for 13 years. Uh, I appeared in court serving both the Jewish and Palestinian communities. Uh, and after that, I became uh, the deputy head of the prosecution office. So that was a remarkable, so, that, was, that was a remarkable career really at that time uh, and, and, and it flows as you were saying from your theological conviction about your identity in Christ through the cross. I, I'd just love to step back just a little bit if, if I could to where we were a little bit earlier and the fact that for many for many of us including myself um, and I've, I have visited Israel uh, and I've been to Bethlehem and so on but only as a visitor um, many people want to visit the Holy Land as it's known but I just wonder for you how it feels to be living in the land where Jesus was born and lived and walked and worked and died and rose again. Does that fact 
um, really resonate with you to have what one might say is the privilege of actually spending your life there? Uh, well, yes, of course, it's a privilege. But when 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 you live uh, like your daily life here, uh, what you actually see is it's more uh, the traffic jam and the pollution, maybe and uh, uh, the bad news every every while. And uh, yes. <laughs> so it's uh, it's it's lovely when 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 you ask me this question, I remember. Well, yes, of course, it's the Holy Land. It's an amazing place. Uh, but I would love. Um, well, dead stones, it's its really marvelous just to go and visit and, and read the Bible there and so on. But I like to interact with uh, uh, living stones. I was going to say, it sounds like some aspects of life in the land of Israel today would be what Jesus also experienced, apart from the traffic jams, I suppose, uh, but mm -hmm. certainly the tensions, uh, the, the, the hostility. I mean, we know that in his day there was a lot of political tension, a lot of uh, hatred of the Romans and uh, a lot of uh, rejection of him. So uh, it wasn't all sweetness and light in Jesus' day either. Yes, mm. yes. Let's uh, let's move on to then. You you were telling us about your work as a public prosecutor and so on, but then uh, after your PhD studies, you um, began teaching now in the Nazareth Evangelical College, uh, and have now founded this Nazareth Peace Centre. I wonder if you could just tell us first of all a bit about the college, about uh, NEC. Uh, where do the students come from? Uh, are there Jewish as well as Arab students? I mean, tell us a little bit about your college. Nazareth Evangelical College, it's a, a small college. Uh, we have a, a BA program and also a master's programs. Uh, our students are, most of them are uh, Christian Arabs, Palestinians, Christian Arab. Uh, many of them are uh, already leading uh, major ministries in the country or have uh, an influential professional life. Uh, so we are hoping that uh, uh, their evangelistic or pastoral or educational ministry will be shaped by our uh, courses uh, that we give uh, at the college. Uh, and I believe and I, uh, uh, I hope uh, that uh, our uh, uh, transformative teaching uh, will shape uh, their ministries and help them to engage more in, in peacemaking. Uh, well, after all, uh, we can't do peace without engagement. Mm -hmm. So we, we encourage our students to engage in their specific communities to become agent of change uh, uh, through uh, the research that they are doing at the college, through the teaching and through maybe activism. Could you tell us why did you find and establish this Nazareth Peace Centre, which I think is a fairly recent thing, am I right? Yes, well, uh, actually, I uh, I founded this centre in uh, 2019. Oh. And my goal is to, uh, you know, attract non-evangelical, uh, non-Christian, uh, attract more women and youth into uh, uh, working with them through the Peace Centre. So it sounds uh, what, what the the peace center effectively is is taking what one might say taking out onto the streets what you're trying to do in the seminary, but making it available for a wider community, both wider in the sense of people who are not necessarily academic, but also people who are not necessarily Christian, but who want to pursue peace.
you've, you've written that the prophetic ministry of the church is to link the gospel to important events and daily issues. Well, obviously, just as the prophets did. And I'm still quoting from you. When the church is silent, while the country suffers from political and economic turmoil and widespread human rights violations, the church loses its legitimacy and prophetic voice. The church must serve as the conscience of society. It's not a matter of choosing to be political. Rather, the choice is to be true and obedient to God's word. I close the quote. And it seems to me that that's quite a sharp thing to say because there are some churches and Christians who do choose to be political, but often in ways that are not necessarily true and obedient to God's word, uh, certainly not in relation, for example, to the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm just wondering how how strong are the churches, Christian churches in Israel, taking this kind of message? The, the Palestinian church in, in, in Israel in, in term uh, being generalized in numerical minority, uh, being a historically oppressed church, uh, also the felt peace process, uh, the instability in the regime, uh, the limited international support. Um, I, I will add to that that the Palestinian Christian, uh, they count maybe 150,000, but they are divided into 20 uh, denominations uh, controlled by foreign leadership. It really weakened uh, the Palestinian church from unifying Palestinian resistance against injustice in terms of being a, prophetical, a, a, a prophetic voice. But I would say that despite all that, despite all of that, uh, Christians, Palestinian Christians, they have effectively shaped contextual theology uh, related to their struggle uh, and really draw a widespread attention to the injustice uh, through different nonviolence practices and different uh, grassroots uh, parachurch organization. I think our churches would tend to be, most of them, not all of them, tend to be uh, pietistic. So um, our theology would be more uh, vertical and less uh, horizontal. Mm. Uh, but this thing is changing. And uh, I can see that the Palestinian Christian youth uh, are uh, um, pushing the church into thinking in a different way because uh, they have uh, more and more questions. Uh, they wanted to live uh, their faith rightly, but in the same time, they want to be an agent of change. And this, uh, in fact, put the church, uh, the Palestinian church, into a uh, a place that they have to give answers and so on. And actually, I have seen that in some of the ministry that I was doing with the youth meeting and also the student conference, which I had last month. The question that they were asking during the conference and the meetings related to the conflict and how they have to respond to that. So the question is, how can we guide them uh, to stand up uh, against the injustice they face uh, by becoming peacemakers or mm. uh, bridge builders? Uh, how can one practice uh, his faith in reality of hatred? So these are all difficult questions, and, and uh, the answers seems to be very easy to answer. But in fact, how do you implement that? Mm. Uh, how do you practice that? So I felt that they need some kind of framework to help them reconcile between their Christian faith that command them to love and their enthusiasm to be agent of change. Hmm. Several things that I was 
uh, it was important for me just to mention that, that uh, it's very important not to let wrongdoing or unjust action to shape their identity, because then we will be either we have a victimhood mentality or the perpetrator mentality. But Christ, he wants us to have the peacemaker mentality. And also uh, forgiveness and justice, how they work in harmony. So these were, were some of the hard questions and the discussion that we had. Mm. Your, what you said just a few moments ago reminded me of something that I heard um, the the late, the, the head of the Bible Society in Israel, is his name Madamat, I think, at uh, one of the Christ at the Checkpoint conferences that I attended. I remember him saying, and I, I wrote it down immediately, he said, the devil, Satan, wants us to shape our relationships around what he is doing in the world. Yeah. God wants us to shape our relationships around what Jesus has already done for us. Yes. And I thought that was a very powerful way of expressing the Christian difference. Yes. Let's move on, if we may, then, um, uh, Rula, to your life as a scholar and a teacher and a writer, because uh, you've already referred to some of your writing and Langham, uh, Langham Partnership, Langham Literature, has actually published your recent book, Theology of Reconciliation in the Context of Church Relations, a Palestinian Christian perspective in dialogue with Miroslav Volf, of course, the famous Croatian uh, scholar who's written a lot about reconciliation and so on. Could you tell us a bit about your book and how you define that, what you call a theology of reconciliation? Of course, some of which you did speak of a little bit earlier. In in my book, I uh, I translated the Miroslav Volf uh, theory of reconciliation uh, into a Palestinian-Israeli context, uh, which is, I would say, a Middle Eastern context. I examined it critically, uh, both Wolf theory, which includes four main uh, themes, uh, which is remembrance, uh, forgiveness, justice, and the breast, and uh, the Middle Eastern peacemaking models. Through uh, analyzing three case studies of uh, church splits uh, in, in our context, I developed a Middle Eastern theology of reconciliation, uh, engaging our culture and the Western theory of Miroslav. Could you just so, say again, if you don't mind, could you just say again those four principles that Miroslav Volf had? I just didn't hear the last one very clearly, but I think yes. they're quite important, but then how you've developed them. But just remind us again those four principles of reconciliation from Miroslav Volf. Remembrance, yeah. forgiveness, justice and embrace. Embrace, that's the last one, yes. Remembrance, forgiveness, justice and embrace. Yes, a very powerful uh, right. four things. Yes. yes. Sorry, carry on. So uh, my new model proposed that for more effective reconciliation theologies, we should add another four elements. And these are community, venting, dignity restoration, and rituals, or if you wish, formality. Mm -hmm. So uh, all this I did based on almost 100 in-depth interviews uh, with pastors and ministers, uh, uh, who were involved uh, in these uh, three Palestinian church splits. So community, and the second was? Venting. Venting, in other words, giving vent to what you feel and think, is that right? Yes. Venting, and then 
and the dignity restoration. Dignity and, restoration uh, and rituals. And rituals. Thank you. Yes. Let me explain a bit uh, why the four elements are important. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, community is an important participant in the process of reconciliation because community can bear uh, the burden of the wrong uh, done. Uh, community also uh, has the ability to influence uh, its members uh, by using uh, forgiveness and embrace languages. It can also pressure, put pressure on the uh, perpetrator or uh, offender to repent and ensure that justice is sustained. Uh, community also can restore and embrace uh, uh, both the victim and uh, the perpetrator uh, after he repents. And so these are important things that the community can do and can uh, influence uh, positively mm -hmm. uh, the reconciliation process. Uh, also venting, uh, it's important. Uh, venting names the wrongs and condemn it. And also it allows uh, uh, the expression of uh, negative feelings. Uh, dignity, for example, restoring dignity, release pain. Uh, restoring dignity that was lost because of conflicts heal shame by embracing a back into right relationship. Of course, as a community, why rituals are important. So as a community, uh, we celebrate who we are through symbols, through words, through remembering our stories. And uh, the church as a community, it carries within itself the values uh, and the resources for fostering social uh, reconciliation. Uh, church practices could be seen as rituals uh, for promoting forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, church practices uh, and rituals such as communion, uh, foot washing, worshipping, praying and preaching, uh, they are very helpful uh, as a ritual. I mean, this is in the context of church, of course. It gains community involvement. It provides a space for interaction between people. Uh, the word of God, of course, work in our minds and heart and transform us. So all these activities as rituals uh, sustain Christian reconciliation uh, because they focus on uh, God's love uh, as uh, uh, we remember uh, that we are forgiven and forgivers. Mm. Each time we confess, each time we read the Bible, each time we sing and pray and eat together, and so this is why uh, all these elements are important to be integrated into reconciliation process. Mm, I, I think... This is the, in, in, in brief, <laughs> this, is the, this is the proposal. That's, that, that sounds wonderful. I, as you were talking, I was just thinking of the Book of Lamentations uh, and how in some ways there are elements of, of those things in there. This is community lamenting. They are venting their feelings right. and thoughts. Um, and, and they're also... Uh, in a sense, longing for the restoration of dignity in the presence of God. And, of course, there is a formalism that the poetry itself uh, is, is in a form which, which gives almost a kind of ritual flavor to the book. So um, there's something, something quite profound there. This is interesting how you have taken something that comes from Croatia, from the Balkans. You have uh, translated it, in a sense, into a Middle Eastern voice. And I'm just wondering where... Can we in the Western church learn from a theology like this? What, what do you think the church and the Palestinian believers, Palestinian church and the uh, Middle East and Israel can, 
contribute, can teach us uh, in the West? Because you've lived and worked here in the West, you know what we're like. So what do you think we have to learn from such a theology? Uh, we can help better understand the context of the Bible. This is one thing. Uh, as we know, the Bible and the places, the biblical places, and preserve some of the culture of the time of Jesus, uh, we can also help, uh, that help the church understand it. Uh, but also, despite being a historically uh, oppressed church and as a numerical minority uh, with the pressure from the outside and the inside, I think the Palestinian church uh, succeeded in demonstrating its love to Muslim and Jew uh, by praying for them and blessing them, uh, which with, with this, I think the Palestinian church challenges the theologies that encourage exclusion and division in the body of Christ. That's so. that, that is very powerful because, uh, sadly, there are those who either visit Israel or think about Israel only in terms of a theology which is often very exclusionary uh, and very hostile to uh, anything other than what they feel is there uh, in, in, the, in, in the state of Israel and uh, overlook the reality of the existence of Palestinian Arab Christian faith uh, and those who are seeking to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of, of, of that uh, often very oppressive measures. So that I think that's a good thing for us to hear. Just as we, moving on, some people listening may feel just a little bit overwhelmed because the whole idea of reconciliation, of building peace and so on, is hard work and it can be overwhelming. And people may feel, you know, what can I do uh, as just one person uh, or a small church or whatever it may be when the problems and the conflicts and the disagreements are so vast. And I notice that one of the things you do, you run workshops, you get together with local people, uh, you help them to work on this. So what, w what would you say to someone who just feels a bit overwhelmed and intimidated at the very thought of being a peacemaker? I would say two things. The first thing is... Uh to look at conflict as an opportunity to serve God, to serve others, to glorify God, and to, uh, to grow to be like Christ. But the second thing that I will say, it's to honor small steps, which means uh, sometimes we tend to look at big results but when it fails, this might discourage us. Small steps are achievable. It keeps us on the way to victory, even though it might not take place during our time. So uh, during these small steps, we are shaped and changed to be Christ-like. I, I like Gideon's story. Uh, Gideon saw the, hard, the hunger of his people and decided to act. So he collected wheat and uh, threshed grain secretly, even in, in a wine press. And he was hiding from the enemy in order to feed uh, the hungry. So God, who was watching him, uh, appeared to him as an angel. And uh, he said to him, uh, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, right? Hmm. Uh, Gideon, like many of us, uh, doubted his ability. I doubted my ability many times. He suffered so many defeats, as I did, <laughs> and failures. 
And he even put God on the test three times. So what I want to say that all of us have power to act creatively, even in situation of oppression and injustice and hardship. But God can accomplish great things through us if we trust him and if we follow his guidance. And so when peacemaking become a lifestyle, I would say small stories or small successful stories uh, will help us uh, with the journey toward reconciliation. So let's just lower our sight and say everything what I'm doing, even if it's very small, for God, it's big. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know how he evaluated, but if we obey him, I think this will make him very happy. Good. Uh, yes. Thank, thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you, Rula. You know, we're coming towards the close, but um, and I want to ask you at the end just what we can pray for and uh, what's next for you and so on. But this morning, in my own devotions, I always read a psalm every day. And the psalm I was just reading today was Psalm 120. And that's at the end of that psalm. It says, Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And I read that, and then, as is also my habit, uh, I, when I've read a psalm, I often now read um, one of your colleague, Johanna Catanaccio's prayers based on the psalms. Johanna Catanaccio, who, yeah. of course, is yeah. uh, academic dean there at uh, NEC. Mm-hmm. And I thought I would just read what he prayed on the basis of Psalm 120. Oh, Lord, I am tired of the journalists who hate peace. They rush to war, but I am a man of peace. So I will start my adventure towards you with a dream in which I anticipate the coming of your kingdom. I dream of a Middle East in which I eat breakfast in Jerusalem, lunch in Beirut and dinner in Syria. I dream of a Middle East in which there is no bigotry, radicalism and hatred. I dream of a Middle East in which all human beings are equal, whether they wear a hijab, a kafia, or a kippah. I dream of a Middle East without poverty, hatred, wars and massacres. I dream of peace peace with God and peace with our neighbours, peace with ourselves and with angels. I dream of a Middle East without weapons, without traffic jams, without pollution, without discrimination because of gender, religion, age or weight. And my dream is not an illusion because I follow Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. My dream is not something that can be fulfilled in a moment. It is a celestial kingdom that comes through many generations and many sacrifices, prayers and tears. Before the dawn, there is darkness. Before joy, sadness has its victory. Before laughing, weeping dominates. Before the dominance of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the devil reigns. O Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. May your kingdom come through my words and thoughts and decisions and relationships turn me into a peacemaker. That's Johanna's prayer, and I thought it was worth reading. Yes. Nice. So, Rula, um, what is next for you? You've told us a bit about your uh, work and so on, but how can we pray for you and for Bader and your family? Pray for us that I can navigate between uh, the different responsibility of, uh, you know, at home, at, at uh, Nazareth Evangelical College, at the center, 
and also uh, uh, the postdoctoral studies. That's good. All right. So we'll pray for those things and wish you well in all of that work in that very tough part of the world. Let me let me pray now, shall I? Heavenly Father, thank you for this conversation. Thank you also for that prayer in in the Psalms and elsewhere, the prayer for peace and for the kingdom of God and for your will to be done on earth as in heaven. Lord, how much we long for that. And we pray that you would help uh, us, uh, help Rula and all who, like Rula, are involved in the costly and demanding work of reconciliation, conflict resolution, justice seeking, forgiveness and peacemaking. We remember that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, and so we pray that you will indeed bless Rula and her family, Bader, her husband, and her three boys, that you will protect them from harm and evil, and that you will enable them to continue to serve you for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to On Mission. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this rich discussion on peace and reconciliation from a Middle Eastern perspective. May we remember Rula's words and seek ways to engage in peacemaking with those around us. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless. God bless.